Hi, I'm Audrey Bellis, and you're listening to Brown Girls Rising, a worthy women podcast in partnership with Nylon Español. We tell stories about fierce, femme, leaders, and activists of color bettering our worlds. Let's get started. So we are here today with, I think it might be our first recording artist oh. that we have had on the show. Sankeys, is this our first recording artist? We've got a few coming up, but I think you're the first actual one to record. That's we, awesome. <laughs> we have Geminelle with us, people. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, tell our audience a little bit about yourself and uh, about your work. Yeah. Okay. So uh, my name is Geminelle. I was originally born in San Diego, California. Um, I'm currently living in Brooklyn, New York, and yes. I just made the leap into full-time artist entrepreneurship. So I'm currently a full-time singer-songwriter, event coordinator, musician, consultant. I do some freelance writing as well for small businesses. I also pick up gigs doing like art installations for museums in New York and deinstalls, et cetera. So anything I can pretty much get my hands on that's art related, I'm I'm kind of one of those people that they'll call and be like, do you know who I can reach out to for this or that? So that's kind of been my role out in Brooklyn as of lately, which has been a really interesting and very exciting journey. So Brooklyn showed up so big for us this year. It was one of our stops for the Worthy Women National Tour. Every month we're producing a free conference in a different city. And Brooklyn, dare I say it, I think was my favorite event so far this year. I believe that. Uh, (laughs) Brooklyn women showed up. Yes. They turned up. Uh They stayed with (laughs) us. And they were – here's what I love about them – they were all creatives. Oh, yeah. They were all freelancers. We were hosted by the Williamsburg Hotel – And it was the most incredible experience ever. Brooklyn was so, how do I even begin to describe this? It was like, that's going to be our sister city. That's Mm going to be our other anchor. If this is our, if LA is our West Coast home and our headquarters, then Brooklyn specifically is going to be our East Coast home. And not Manhattan. We're doing something in Manhattan later this year, but like, there was something about the magic of Brooklyn that was eclectic. It was creative. It was supportive. It wasn't cutthroat. And the women were so down for each other and diverse, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. when I think of Brooklyn, I'm thinking like white Jewish ladies. No. And it was none of that. <laughs> it was none of that. No, it's a it's a lot of Afros. It's a lot of yeah. African print. Um you know, Caribbean whining. It's its so beautiful. Like the energy in Brooklyn is unlike anything I've ever seen. So it's really dope to be there and to be a creative that's a part of that energy is, it's inspiring. It is. That is, uh, for lack of a better phrase, it's absolutely inspiring. So I can only imagine um, deciding to make this full-time leap jump into this. What a more appropriate place. Uh, I'm curious as to how you became a recording artist. Like, what was the path that got you to the stage and has kept you here? (laughs) Um, It actually started when I was pretty young. So, um, you know, my mom would tell me stories about getting kicked out of the house for singing too much in the house. Like, just go sing outside. They never discouraged me from from being a singer, but it was Mm -hmm. always like, you've been singing the same song 
for the last hour. Please go sing outside. You're a broken record. <laughs> right, exactly. And, um, you know, growing up, I grew up in a predominantly Filipino neighborhood. And so I grew up with Filipino friends and went to parties where they, they had karaoke for their birthday parties. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Filipinos love karaoke. <laughs> Absolutely. And so um, here I am singing at a birthday party. And I think that was the first time that my, my family really realized, like, oh, she has a talent, like a true talent. It's not just, you know, this same song on repeat in our backyard. And so they started throwing me in different auditions for musicals. I was singing national anthems for different, for hockey games, for track meets, whatever opportunity that my mom could get me to just be kind of in the limelight, it was there. And then one day I got picked up by a manage a manager and he invited me to be a part of a girls group called Miss. And that was my first introduction into like the industry. And so we would meet with A&Rs and different producers. And in Los Angeles, we would make that two and a half hour drive almost every other weekend to go meet with a different person and kind of just see what opportunities they could bring to us. When I was 16, I got offered a deal, but they wanted me to kind of like, they wanted me to push aside the songs that I had written and put them on the shelf and change my style to this completely different like pop, you know, something that um, was a little bit more catchy, more quote unquote my age. They wanted me to be more like a, a Sierra. And at the time I was writing music kind of more like a Jill Scott, like soulful vibe. Oh, I love Jill Scott. Yeah. <laughs> And so I totally just made the decision to, you know, take a break. And I I knew that I didn't want to we took a long change walk. who I was. Oh, yeah. Like, you right? know, I dropped in that Jill Scott reference. Exactly. I was going to try and sing it, but I didn't want to embarrass myself. <laughs> yeah. So I, I took a break. I went to school and school ended up landing me here in L.A. again. And... At the time, I just wasn't really filling the education route anymore. I was getting my master's degree. I was kind of over school. And I found myself just being more entrenched in the culture of Los Angeles, which is a musical place. So open mics and different talent shows and performing again, I started writing. And that was really what got me back into um, being a singer-songwriter I guess fast forward, I had gotten a job after I got my master's, got laid off. I bought a one-way ticket with my severance package to Austin. I toured across the country just doing open mics and trying to figure out what would happen if I went and performed in all these cities across the United States. And it was beautiful because what I, when I had anticipated to do was perform on the streets and at these open mics. And instead, I was offered shows. I was offered paid gigs. I was offered stages to perform on. And I built a network of people who still invite me to come and perform in Austin, in New Orleans, in D.C. Um, and that's that's ultimately what landed me in New York, because when I was on that journey, almost every single person I met said that they were from Brooklyn and oh you would do great in Brooklyn and your music would just it would you know they would love you you they would love you out there um and so I came back home from my little I guess experimental tour and I told my mom I was gonna move and I packed up my cars and I drove across country and um I've been there now for three years so that's that's how I ended up there it was still kind of like a I'm a part-time employee here or I have a full-time job here, but I'm still doing music all the way up until this year. I just decided to really focus my attention completely. I love that. What I really love about this is that you trusted the path and 
didn't force it to look a certain way. You let it evolve and really trusted that you're on the right path no matter where it goes of where you need to go. I know that for many women, including myself, I very much struggle with, it has to look a certain way, which means I have to do all these things to get there. And I know for me, like I had a major depressive episode in my mid-20s following a broken engagement and I just couldn't figure out if I had done everything right, how I still got into that position. And I think it was because I was so obsessed with the outcome that I was willing to compromise myself on the journey to get to that outcome versus holding true. And I think that's something so incredibly beautiful about what you've done. And also the fact that you're like, I'm just going to pick up and go. I think so many of us are tied with the what ifs that oh, yeah. we really limit ourselves. So I think that that is incredible and inspiring. And I'm curious as your community has grown, because you're now like an icon, not just for your followers, but your social media followers, women in the industry that want to be like you and do what you do. As your community has gotten larger, how has that shifted how you view yourself as a leader and what you're producing as far as creative endeavors, content to really showcase that and to help other women along the way. Wow. Um, You know, I just call me Oprah, (laughs) y'all. I just barely started considering myself a leader. And it's interesting because living in Brooklyn, I live in a community called East New York, Brooklyn, and it's kind of, it's being called the last frontier because it hasn't yet been gentrified. So it's still a lot of the same neighborhood that has been there, that grew up there, but it is a rougher part of Brooklyn, New York, you know? And we have come across so many young creatives that are there that are they're engaged with the movement. I'm a part of a collective called Tunnel Vision Artists. And through Tunnel Vision Artists, we host a ton of events that are, you know, visual art, film showings, you know, performances. And we have, we kind of generated our community through that. Um, And so I actually have like a community of young men who are more engaged with me than women, which I find interesting. And they are constantly coming to my, coming to our door and asking for advice like every single day. And I, you know, they call me like mother creator. That's, that's like Ooh, the term that they give that. me. And I'm like so honored by it, but I, I'm like, okay, so you guys are like my sons. Is that, <laughs> is that how this works? It's you know, <laughs> right. But it's, it's so interesting. Like, just to be able to give advice to young people about seizing their own opportunities and really creating their own opportunities. And I think like what you were saying about us feeling like the path has to look a certain way when you relinquish that idea, you know, the path becomes so much more clear, you know? And so being able to share that information and that knowledge and really just based off of experiences to the people who kind of look up to us and they're they're, um, in admiration of the work that we do, that was really when I was like, oh, I guess I'm kind of like one of the OGs in the community now, you know, (laughs) because they're looking up to me, they're asking for advice and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's just interesting. This year I'm actually headed out on tour again. Um, going the same path that I went the last time. It's called the Follow the Music Tour. And I'm bringing along a friend who also is making her first leap of faith into um, her artistry as a DJ. And so she'll be traveling with me along the way. But, you know, she often tells me, how much she thinks about that journey and how much she she wishes she could have gone on something like that. And so we're actually going, which I think is really exciting. And I think it's great that I get to be like this person who 
has a bit of a little bit of knowledge about how it works out and that I can share my network with her across the country. And it's my hopes that I'll be able to coordinate and meet with other women creatives along the road and to be able to create a network of women who are willing to share their resources and their their knowledge in their city. And so that is that's really the vision for this this trip. Just being able to travel with two women across the country. I feel like that's such an interesting story to tell already because you don't really hear about it. Like even the first time when I, I went on the follow on the music journey, when I told people I was going, they were like, oh my God, what are you, you know, this is so dangerous. And it's like, it's only dangerous if you allow it to be and if you're not smart about, you know, right. you know what you're doing. But I feel like a lot of our capability is in how we manifest our own thoughts and the energy yes. that we attract. And I think that this journey is going to be life-altering for the two of us. I'm just being able to see the country and create spaces for women creatives to come together. And you will. I think that's the power of social media where you can put out like, and I do this when I travel, like, hey, I'm coming to your city. Who in my network knows people that I should be connecting with? Right. Let me know who. Cold outreach. We talk a lot here about my Insta thirst and how <laughs> like a lot of our guests come from the fact that I've like stalked somebody on Instagram and I'm very thirsty in my DM right. outreach. Uh, in fact, our previous two guests ago, we were laughing just before this started recording because I was so thirsty. I was like, oh my gosh, I liked 15 of your photos. I'm kind of obsessed with you. I went back to the very beginning. I watched your, I looked at your entire Instagram. (laughs) This is my podcast. This is why I think you'd be great. I would love to have you on it. Pardon my thirst, but will you, will you please? (laughs) I'm just sliding this into their DM. And she responded back. She was like, oh, that's not thirst. I do that to women all the time. And I feel like as women, we are naturally collaborative and community building. And I think you will definitely see that. And the power of travel like you know when I look at travel experiences that I've had with romantic partners versus travel that I've had with my girlfriends Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong I love those trips with my boyfriends or things that I've done with like past partners but nothing is so fond for me as travel that I've had with girlfriends right because it's different right Mm -hmm. um the guys at some point you're gonna break up with them and then you're like, man, you're in this photo with me. And right. I'm like, and now every time I think of now I'm gonna this city, to like, I'm going to have to think of you. Yeah, like, can you take a photo? Like, can we take this same photo, but of just me and you take the photo? Right. Like, please have a second set for when I break up with you. But like your girls, that's like, oh, there's something, I don't want to say Thelma and Louise about it because you're going on a road trip, but just this general like bonding experience. And right. I think this confidence to push your limits mm-hmm. and push it with a sense of like, we can do this because I'm not alone. Like I have somebody with me. So no matter what happens, I'm going to have like a road dog with me like right. for reals that I can laugh with, I can share with. I'm going to meet new people and new experiences. And I think we so undervalue the importance of travel and traveling alone because my best experience is, again, not just girl- friends traveling with girlfriends, but when I've gone on trips by myself. Like when I went to Brooklyn to put on that event, I didn't take my team with me. I produced that event alone. That's awesome. And um, it wasn't originally planned. It worked out that way. But I got to tell you, like Brooklyn, there was something about that trip, like getting there, landing, taking the subway in, like getting all set up by myself. There wasn't anybody to show me what to do. It was me and my iPhone. And we're like, okay, well, we're going to do this, this, and this. And thankfully, I have familiarity with the city. But like there was something so like – empowering of I've got this I'm doing this absolutely there's something really beautiful too about having the space to not have to wait on anybody or like oh yes you know and you can just go 
whenever you feel like it, like, oh, I'm not really feeling this bar. I'm going to go somewhere else. And I think there's something also really beautiful about traveling by yourself because there's opportunity for you to meet so many more people that way um, just because you are by yourself. There truly is. Um, so I'm curious. This podcast is called Brown Girls Rising. Right. And we ask all of our guests this. Okay. <laughs> uh, do you identify yourself as a brown girl? And is that something, a title that you've held with pride or shame? Mm. Um, I think that in my lifespan, <laughs> there's been a little bit of both. I currently, I identify as black. I identify as African-American. I identify as mixed race. So I do have these many identities that I kind of identify with. I guess for some some background, my mother is Hawaiian, Chinese. My, my father is black American. And so when I was growing up, there was this I mean, I grew up in San Diego, right? So although I grew up in a neighborhood that is predominantly Filipino, black and brown, San Diego is is very white. And military. And military, yeah. So you, I mean, it's very, it's it's international, it's diverse. And so it's, it's interesting because I went to elementary school with a pretty diverse group of kids and I never felt like I fit in. I wasn't quote unquote Asian enough. I wasn't black enough. And so I ended up hanging out with these three white girls. <laughs> and it was mostly because we all had the same birthday. And that was how we identified, you know, that's how we I shared know. identity. <laughs> so it was it was really interesting. I think when I went to middle school, that's when I started to kind of like feel empowered by the fact that I was of mixed race, that I could kind of traverse these two different communities and relate on both ends. And then when I got into high school and into college, that's when I really started identifying with what it meant to be African-American because I was around people who actually identified as Black or African, and they took so much pride in their identity. And so it made me feel comfortable taking pride in my own identity. And yeah, I don't know. Like there's, there, It is like a, a little bit of a growth, I think, that happened to be able to go from, you know, almost being afraid to admit that you were of mixed race or that your parents are, you know, an interracial couple to going to being like, well, this is just, this is who I am. This is how I identify. And this is how I choose to identify in this space, you know? Right. Like I, maybe I'm not identifying as black and Hawaiian today. Maybe I'm just black today, you know? And being able to just be able to choose how you feel like you want to identify when you do. And I'm very proud of all of my cultures, you know. Um, I was going to be like, girl, I you must eat so well. <laughs> I'm just picturing like this blend of like Hawaiian. Oh, yeah. Oh, my Chinese gosh. And like, <laughs> I'm just like, oh, that sounds so delicious. Right. <laughs> Clearly, I'm on a diet because everything sounds delicious right. <laughs> to me at the moment. No, it's definitely, definitely growing up and being at um, – there's a really big Pacific Islander festival that happens in San Diego every year. And that oh. was probably like one of my favorite events growing up, just being there. All the food, all of the dances, all of the culture, all of the very hot, tatted up guys. It was great. So yes. <laughs> it was a really cool experience growing up and being able to be just proud of your culture that way. And, you know, living in Brooklyn now, I feel like I am deeply, deeply entrenched in what it means to be Black, African, Caribbean, even, you know, Afro, Afro-Latino, and just being able to see those experiences and just how the diaspora, the African diaspora is spread out across Brooklyn. It's really beautiful. It's really powerful. Ooh. So second question of what we ask most of our guests here. Okay. <laughs> Do you identify yourself as a feminist? 
and how has your feminism changed over the years? Um, I don't know if I all the way identify as a feminist. And I feel like, I mean, depending on who you talk to, the term feminism changes. But I, I mean, I am absolutely pro-women. You know, I'm currently in a in a relationship and most of our conversations are about how women are viewed or treated, especially living in Brooklyn and New York. I feel like the catcalling out there is on a thousand. Like it doesn't yes. even, you will get followed home sometimes, yep. you know, and it's really scary. Like my first year out there, just experiencing the way that men viewed women or how they talked to women, it was really aggressive and very uncomfortable. And like me growing up in like, you know, a little rougher part of town, like I would have to bark back a lot. And then, you know, that creates like this tension that puts you in a dangerous situation. And, you know, it's all unwarranted. And so I feel like as a woman, um, I try to teach the men around me, especially the young men that I'm currently like mentoring, teaching them how to treat women, you know, and, and how to, how to talk to women and how to court women, you know, because there's still that element of that too. And, I guess in that way, like, I'm kind of teaching people or I guess I could be considered feminist in that way. But yeah, I mean, I'm just all about women supporting women and definitely just about creating spaces for women to be vulnerable and to share their resources and share their stories and, you know, cry on each other's shoulders if need be and lift each other up or, you know, call in a favor for a friend. (laughs) Yeah, All of those things, yeah. You know, and I think this topic of like courtship too, uh, I find so fascinating because we are in a world of swiping. Oh my gosh. Right? I miss that era and I'm so glad. (laughs) You miss swiping or you miss the courtship or both? I miss the swiping part. Like I got in a relationship right before I think Tinder. So I'm like, oh no, never experienced that before. (laughs) You know, I hadn't either. I've only had one online dating experience and had like an instant boyfriend with the one and only guy I went out on a date with (laughs) and I had the app for three days. That's a whole other story. And he was a great guy and he definitely courted me and he was older and very properly courted Mm -hmm. me. And he was from New York. So he had a great little accent. He was like, Woodry, what? You want to go get some coffee? You want to talk about it? And I'm like, I don't want to talk about anything. That's awesome. Um, So there was a lot of fun with that. But, you know, this idea of when I think of feminism and I think of women of color, I so often feel like we get lumped into this like shitty we're not being courted category, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're – Latinas and African-American women are statistically most likely to be single mothers. Like right. I think of the bad choices that we're making in partnerships and what we're allowing because of either what's been what's being modeled to us, what the media shows us, right? right? And how do we make those differences? And I also think as a feminist, like, and maybe this is just getting older and growing up, but like what you will stand for and what you absolutely know you will not stand for. Mm-hmm. And I do not need you in my life. And mm-hmm. I will very much go fulfill myself and find somebody who loves that about me and grow absolutely. into my own. And I think that's one of the most important things. Like when I think about my community, like many women that I speak to, they're like, well, I compromised myself because I wanted somebody to love me. I wanted to feel loved or I wanted to feel worthy or I wanted to be in that. I thought if I was in that relationship with that person and I think it needs to come back to courting ourselves. People don't court us until you, no one is going to court you until you are willing to court yourself and put yourself first and expand your shine. People will be drawn to that sparkle when you invest in your own first. Absolutely. And I think before 
definitely before I got into this relationship, I was single for probably about five years, just figuring myself out. Because at that time, I just realized, you know, like, I don't even really know myself. How am I going to date somebody and them get to know me if I'm not really truly firm in who I am? You know, and I think that that's where you get those wavering those wavering attitudes about, oh, I'm going to change myself to be in this situation. And then even speaking to how you were saying um, uh, black and brown women are are typically single in America. Like, and it doesn't even have to be single mothers. You could be a successful black woman and it'd be hard for you to find someone who wants to be with you because they're intimidated by that. And I think it's so unfortunate. Um, oh, I intimidate you know that- <laughs> a lot of people. I just know that. And I've had, and you know, I've had guys that have dated me that have told me that. And I'm like, the minute they come up with that, I'm like, well, you're just not enough. Like, if you think that I'm an intimidating person, like you should want to step up to that and be right. real proud of that and be like, okay, well let's get on each other's level. Like mm-hmm. unless you're pushing me to be my biggest and my best and you're not, and you're supporting my shine, if you can't do that and we can't support each other. This is not going to work. Right. Right. And I think the biggest, the biggest piece of the term that people miss is the partnership. Mm. You know, that is really what it is. You're entering into a partnership. So you really want somebody who is going to be, exactly that a partner to you someone who is on an equal level to you I think partnership is one of the things that I have truly come to value as an adult I look at my relationships and I don't I no longer think they need to be defined by things like marriage or a ring or labels I look Mm -hmm. at things and I I said this in my current relationship um I said, I'm not looking for somebody who's going to look good on paper. I want somebody who's literally down to ride or die with me. Yeah. Like you should want to be down for all of it because we're building this together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is such a critical thing. And again, coming back to just this growing up of like, what are the things that you value? And I look at my parents and I go, I want that. They yeah. are, you know, statistically the people who are not supposed to make it, right? Interracial, right. interfaith, like everything was going against them. My dad was the first poor white guy in the family. Like <laughs> he was, he still struggles against that. Still doesn't speak Spanish. And, you know, my mom's not Jewish and their families, my dad's family was less welcoming to my mom than my mom's was to my dad. Mm-hmm. But like things like that were, we're the mixed kids for the longest time. Yeah. One of my cousins married a black guy. And then we had other mixed kids. And right. I was like, oh, yes, you're more mixed. You're, this is more controversial of a right. mix than my mix. Now you're a different mix. Right. <laughs> they still spoke better Spanish than we did, but still. Right. Like, and that's interesting because my, my cousin's kids don't identify as mixed. Mm. They identify as Mexican first. Mm. Um, they've gone – they're getting divorced. But my cousin's uh, kids grew up speaking Spanish because her mom would watch them and my aunt doesn't speak English. Right. So for them, like, there was no, there was never this idea of, like, we're different than anybody else. It was always, well, we're Mexican and we speak Spanish. We just have curlier hair. Right. <laughs> right. And one of my other, I've, I've said this before on the podcast, but I have another niece who's the same age as my cousin's kids and she's Mexican. And she doesn't speak Spanish at all. And she's always very jealous that her Spanish wasn't better. And she came home from school one day and she goes, well, I have, she has a little friend. And she goes, um, oh, my gosh. And I forget the little her friend's name. She goes, do you know that so-and-so's dad is black? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and she goes, but did you know? And I said, yes, I knew. And I go, well, what do you think your friend is? 
not that. And they go, well, what do you think your cousin is? Mexican. Right. And like you think of these things as like how do kids perceive this information Mm -hmm. and like what does their world look like as they're navigating through this? I know for for us, we never like consider ourselves mixed for the longest time. We just thought everybody was like us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, that, that is th- something. That's something that you identify with because, you know, me and my brother mixed with the same thing. And that's the household that we grew up in. And so, you know, you – and then also growing up in San Diego, there is there are a ton of black and Filipino kids. I was going to say, do people Mexican just kids. assume like, oh, you must be also Filipino? Like depending on – All the time. <laughs> I have a good friend. She's half Japanese, half white. And when we're together, because we have similar like features as far as like similar color skin tone and dark hair and she loves tacos, people are always like, oh, you two must be sisters. You must be both Mexican. And she's right. like, not even close. Mate. Right. <laughs> or when she's with her Filipino friends, like there's something about like this assimilation of who you are when you're with them. Yeah. Where they're like, oh, you must be Filipino. And she's like, not even close. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> she's like, no. Right. So I always make people guess because it's interesting. I've gotten... Um, I've gotten Dominican before. I can see that. Yeah, I've definitely, I've gotten like, someone said I was, you know, maybe Ecuadorian black. I was like, oh, that's different. I, I haven't heard that. that one. Yeah, definitely. I've gotten Filipino and black a lot. There's only a few people who have really like nailed it on the head. Like, oh, you're Hawaiian, you're Hawaiian black, you know? And even like when you see my mom, it's, it's, she's pretty racially ambiguous too. So it's, it's a little difficult to tell, you know? <laughs> so Yeah. Excellent. So, okay. Curious, what inspires you as a performing artist? Because I'm sure for you to be able to do the things that you do, you've got to draw from lots of other things. What other types of artists have influenced your work? Um, Books, what other methods or methods, what modes of creativity have really helped you channel your experiences? Oh, man. It comes from everywhere, very literally everywhere. Sometimes it'll be a conversation that I've had with a friend. It'll be something that's going on in the political climate of the world. I was just going to say, like, music is the ultimate platform for navigating through politics. Yeah. I mean, and and sometimes it'll just be very, very high-level emotion, either just being overwhelmed or completely elated. It could be so many different things. My most recent album, I just released an album almost almost a year ago, and that entire album came from me just being completely uncomfortable living in Los Angeles. So it was my whole experience of this kind of coming of age story and learning about myself in this big city where I thought I was a big fish, but I'm no longer a big fish. So who am I, you know, and just asking myself those questions, but then also just realizing that a lot of people are also having that quarter life century kind of crisis and figuring themselves out. And so it drew from so many different experiences, including my own. Like I have this one song that people love. They think that it's about a relationship like gone wrong, but it was about a roommate situation gone wrong. Oh, that's funny you know? how, and I- <laughs> how people like hear things and they adapt it to their own stuff and make assumptions about what you, what mode you were in when you wrote that. Right, right. And I, but I also think that um I I try to leave room for that, you know, because I want people to be able to be able insert themselves in that experience and say, 
oh man, that same exact thing happened to me. Mm. And I'm like, oh really, tell me about it, you know? And it'll be a completely different story, but I think it's really beautiful that they can take something that was my experience and turn it into their own. And so that that really has been what has inspired me. As of lately, I have not been writing. I've actually been doing a lot of the scoring for various films. And so that has been a completely brand new and amazing, beautiful process because I get to live inside someone else's artistic world and create the emotion for them and sit in front of a movie that is silent and create the entire sound for it, which I think is really interesting because I never noticed how like empty a film is without sound effect. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and how much it really drives the impact of the movie, right? right and right. how people experience it. I just saw uh, Moonlight for the mm-hmm. first time. And the first thing that I realized uh, with the song, oh, I'm blanking on her name. The song's called like Father, Father. Mm. Oh, I'm totally blanking on the name. Anyways, I heard her on NPR years ago. Right. And I like never thought anything of her until I was watching the movie and something about the soundtrack, like the score of it, and they would play that at very like key interval moments, that same one. And I was like, I have to like Shazam this. <laughs> and sure enough, it was that song. And I was like, how obscure that this person that I'd like heard on NPR like years ago, and I'm like instinctively hearing this. Right. And it was, it was so powerful. And I don't know that that movie would have been as powerful as it was if it hadn't been for the score and how important that is in movies and literally how people experience it. Cause it drives your emotions. It does. It does. It does a lot to it. And so it's this last film that I did is an independent film. It was a part of a young master's student's thesis. And so it's a completely, it's a dance film and I scored the entire thing. And so to see it, when I first watched it, I was like, oh, this is going to be such a challenge because they are dancing in it, very literally dancing, and there's no sound, and I have to figure out what rhythm they're dancing to and create this emotion around it. But once I was finished with it, I was so satisfied because, well, one, because the director was satisfied (laughs) and because she felt like I told her story, but you could actually feel the emotion coming from the dancers as if they had danced to that music themselves. And I thought Mm. that that was really beautiful. And so as of lately, I've been more inspired by the collaborations that I've been having with other artists and just being able to dive into their world for a second and create with them where they're at and really just be in their experience and kind of like be in tune with with their experience. And it's great, too, because a lot of these films that I've been doing have been directed by women. And so Mm. it's awesome because I have this opportunity to also just collaborate Within a female energy, which is, you know, it's a different energy. <laughs> Says the mother creator. Right. <laughs> it has come full circle. <laughs> Geminelle, it's been a pleasure to have you. Where can people connect with you? Yeah, they can connect with me. Um, Geminelle.com. That's G-E-M-I-N-E-L-L-E.com. And then there you can find all of my social media as well. Fabulous. Uh, what is your Instagram handle? Oh gosh, it's kind of embarrassing, but <laughs> nothing is ba- more embarrassing than my like AOL aim chat room handle from like. Oh, mine was Geminizzle. Geminizzle, oh, so yeah, <laughs> that was totally mine. What was yours? 
It was Shop Chick 15. Or do you not want to share it? <laughs> it was literally Shop Chick 15. It was not that cool. There may be an old Yahoo address associated with that. Right. I don't know where I came up with that, but everybody else had really cool names and yeah. mine was just not there. Um, please tell me that yours came around right when Jay-Z dropped his right. to the Izzo. Right. It probably did. That sounds about right. Yeah. Or something Snoop Dogg probably, like for shizzle my nizzle, something. Right? I don't know. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. I love how hip-hop influences all things in my life and other people's. Right. Like, it, it makes me feel like we have an even more kindred spirit. <laughs> so my IG name is not Geminizzle. It is actually Jimbo Slice. I'm not sure which is better. But it's um, at G3MBO underscore Slice. Same with Twitter and um, probably everything else. So <laughs> I love that. And I hope... That refers to a slice of pizza because now I'm thinking of one. Again, people, right. this diet has got me craving cheese and carbs and grease. That's so usual. Oh, delicious. <laughs> you can find me fantasizing about food and tracking my diet progress at Audrey Bellis. And this has been Brown Girls Rising. We hope this episode has inspired you. For more, visit browngirlsrising.com. Follow us socially on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Worthy Women LLC and at Brown Girls Rising for future episodes. Until next time. <laughs>